0: Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awakened Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonass. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter him in a diverse community and participate with him in a mission of loving our neighbors. God of the stars and God of our hearts. Our days will pass, but your words will last. The earth might fade, but your words will last. Our memories might blur, but your words will last. The grass will wither, but your words will last. The sky could go dark and your words would last. So as we listen today, help us hold on to what will last. Help us hold on to you. Help us to wait faithfully for that next world to join with ours that we might be together again at home. Gratefully, we pray. Amen. I begin uh, tonight with a poem by W.S. Merwin. It says, um, he writes, your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. So the question, um, I read this poem, I I found it maybe like a decade ago, and I, I stumble upon it once in a while, sort of at random moments in my life, and it always kind of stops me in my tracks. Because I don't know about you, but I can feel that absence go through me when I read it. And I wonder, have you felt an absence go through you? Where do you feel it? The thread and the needles and all of the tiny stitches, what color is the thread? The longing, stay present to it. We as uh, awakeners commit to let that longing do its work within us. Your absence goes through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. We live in a time of quiet tragedies. Uh, We live in a time uh, where we all have a constant sense of being far from home. Chaos reigns across our TV screens, our social media feeds. We live in a time of loneliness, a time of fear of the other, of isolation and feeling overwhelmed. Some of you, I know, have lost your hope, have lost touch with your childlike sense of wonder. You've quit believing that prayers can be answered, that change is possible, that the new world is on its way. You can go to the next slide, Darcy. It feels foolish to hope. It feels painful to have a dream. The only words that you know now are, why bother? Not anymore. It's no use. There's an absence that's gone through you like thread through a needle. Words like perhaps, maybe, suppose, have gone from your vocabulary. And that is what Advent is for. Advent is the season for what ifs. For the perhaps, for the possiblys. And here you all are in this old church building. I'm in person and many of you also on Zoom. Some of you for the first time in a long time, and all of us on the first Sunday of Advent in 2021. Some part of you knew before coming that tonight would be a night for dreaming, a night for longing, a night for wonder. Tonight, we stand between worlds, and the veil is thin. When people talk of the world in religious settings, like church, it's sometimes talk about the end times. And I'm not gonna lie, tonight will be no exception. But if you're like me these past five years, you've heard a lot of theories and speculations about the end times. Every time there's an election in the USA, a whole bunch of people I love are convinced it's the end of the world. Hillary Clinton almost won an election, end of the world. Donald Trump lost the next election, end of the world. COVID-19, end of the world, mandatory vaccinations, variants, end of the world, climate change, literally, the world is ending. There's a house for sale beside me on 69th Street that is 700 square feet, built in the 60s, has not been renovated, on the market right now for half a million dollars, end of the world. (laughs) It's easy to look around at our dysfunctional politics, endemic racism, the unbalanced distribution of wealth, climate change, and the endless feed of bad news, and become overwhelmed and then disengaged. Some days it's all too much, and part of me wants to crumple the remaining bits of my faith, hope, and love into a tiny white ball, toss it into the bin, and walk the other way. It's like being homesick for a world that I'm not sure exists. It's like some inner part of myself is searching frantically and frenetically for something to help me disengage. There's a Christian author, uh, theologian, and activist named Christina Cleveland who I really like. She has a new book coming out this year called God is a Black Woman. And she wrote recently that hopelessness is actually a privilege. She says that those who live comfortably and relatively at ease have the luxury of feeling despair or choosing to disengage. And she encourages quite provocatively um, Christian folks to look to those who are being actively oppressed or connected intimately with systemic suffering and notice the way. They seem to have the greatest capacity, and in a sense, the most urgency for hope and compassion. A mother with a sick child never stops hoping and praying. A father with an incarcerated son never stops advocating, hoping, longing for release. And this is why some days my hope hangs entirely from a Roman crucifix. There must be a God. And that God must be a free and lively agent in our world. And that God must have a great capacity for compassion and hope. There must be a God who's familiar with suffering. And this God must truly, when I look around, never stop hoping, dreaming, longing, searching like a widow for a lost coin, never stopping even once until it's found. Uh, You can go to the next slide, I believe. There's a text in Isaiah 42 uh, that haunts me, and I I think of it every advent, um, where God uh, is speaking, and God um, presents God's self as a woman in labor. And I'm not sure if you've ever watched um, a woman give birth, but there's something that happens. I'm looking at Kim, who was a a midwife in another life, um, where suddenly your body takes over, and there's nothing any force in the whole universe could do to stop what has begun. And God knows this sensation. And in Isaiah 42 verse 14, he writes, he says, she says, I've kept still for a very long time. I've been silent and restrained myself. But now, like a woman in labor, I will roar, I will pant, and I will gasp. The new world is on its way. Bryn and Adriana just read moments ago from the prophet Jeremiah, the days are surely coming, says the Lord. When I will remember the promises I made. And when I hear those verses, I hear those ancient words. I know in my bones the new world is on its way. Keep breathing. Keep pushing. The new world surely is almost here. So speaking of anticipating the new world, there's a text in Luke 21, which is our text uh, for this evening. You can uh, go to it on the screen here. It's a very peculiar text that I don't know if this sort of text has been preached at Awaken before, but here we are. Um, If you can't read it, it's okay. I'll read it to you. Luke 21, verse 25, near the end of Jesus's life, he's warning of the end of the current world order. He says, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth there will be dismay among nations in their confusion over the roaring of the sea and the surging waves. The planets and other heavenly bodies will be shaken, causing people to faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. They will see the human one coming on a cloud with great power and great splendor. Now, when these things begin to happen, he says, stand up straight and raise your heads Because your redemption is near. And then Jesus told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, you know that God's kingdom is near. I assure you, this generation won't pass away until everything has happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. Take care. This is the part that gets me take care that your hearts aren't dulled by careless living drunkenness and the anxieties of day-to-day life don't let the day fall upon you unexpectedly like a trap it will come upon everyone who lives on the face of the whole earth so stay alert at all times praying that you are strong enough to escape everything that is about to happen and to stand before the human one is an apocalyptic text. In Adam Ayers' notes about what stood out to him in this text, he wrote, What is curiously hopeful to me is that these warnings are not coming from a distant God through prophets of old. They are coming from the lips of an incarnate God poised to suffer, so that the redemption of all things and all people will be set in motion in the midst of all fear and doubt. Jesus didn't speak these words from the other side. He spoke them right here in the midst of this hurting world, and yet... He speaks of the sun and the moon and the stars. Um, I have a time lapse of the night sky that we'll play for the, the rest of this until we have a um, <clears throat> poem and a, another song at the end of the service. But I wanted to just um, draw your attention to a few things that really strike me about this text in Luke 21. The very first verse, Jesus says, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. That strikes me because I hear a lot of stuff in the news and in my social media about the end times, and it's not often pointing to the sun and the moon and the stars. It's often people looking to American politics, people reflecting on the economy, on on the, the, the virus. But it's not the news, Jesus said, that will tell us when and if the new world is possible. It's the sun and the moon and the stars. Herod the Great didn't know about the birth of Christ, and he was hyper vigilant looking for signs of disturbance in the world he had ordered. And he had no idea that a baby had been born that would change everything. But astrologers from Persia who knew the stars, who knew the constellations, who knew Jupiter and Virgo, Orion and Andromeda and the Pleiades, they knew a cosmic shift had taken place because they knew what scientists often forget. The natural world is not a set of complex mechanisms waiting to be figured out, nor is the natural world an untapped market of resources waiting to be exploited and sold. It's an intricately alive and animate interconnected web of wonder. I have a friend who used to be a part of Awaken, and she keeps track of time by the lunar calendar. She knows exactly when the full moon and the new moon come, she says she can feel the waning and the waxing in her body. Which reminds me, I remember being at a backyard party in, in Ness many years ago, before I knew of Awaken or the possibility that I would live the rest of my life here. We were hanging out, and he turns uh, to David, and he asked David how old he was. And David happened to be 29 at the time. He said, I'm 29. And this man, I, st- I don't remember his name, he, he smiled and he said, Ah, well, blessed Saturn's return to you, sir. And David and I were confused. What, what's a Saturn's return? And he replied with a twinkle in each eye, don't you know about the return of Saturn? Saturn, he said, takes 29 years to journey once around the sun. Once every 29 years, Saturn returns to the exact place in the sky. He said, so David, that means this year. He's back to the place he was when you were born. Blessed Saturn's return. It's an important year. You must reflect on this last 29 years. David and I were confused, a little bit suspicious, a little bit nervous in like the Christian part of us. Like, is is this okay? Can you track time and find rites of passage by the traveling luminaries in our sky? And I remember that man said this, not in these exact words because the COVID-19 pandemic hadn't begun yet, but he said presidents and economies and viruses and trends will come and go. But the stars have been flowing like a river above us for millions of years, and there's quite another story they might tell. The next thing Jesus says is on the earth, there will be dismay among nations and their confusion over the roaring of the sea and surging waves. The light from our screens seem to deaden our senses to the natural world. The earth is so small So fragile in the grand scheme of things. How quickly we are tossed to and fro on the waves of dismay and despair. The first sign, if you remember, in the book of Genesis that God offers to anyone in the holy text is the sign of a rainbow. An assurance in the sky that though the storms may come, the earth will never again be overcome. The planets and other heavenly bodies will be shaken, Jesus says, causing people to faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon this world. It's a prophecy of violent ends to violent systems. I reflect at Christmas time, as all of us should, that some people, often those at the bottom of the food chain, the ones who make our clothes, the ones who harvest our vegetables, the ones who clean the office after hours, they know what it is to faint with fear but then there are those at the top who seem to always rest at ease without fretting much they seem to have enough of a buffer that no disaster could truly shake their sense of security and it gives me goosebumps to hear jesus warn us of the day when that system will be reversed there's something coming upon the world jesus says and i imagine even elon musk won't be able to escape it with his starship Jeff Bezos won't flee from it with his blue origin. The earth isn't just the origin. Jesus says it's our final destination. And in verse 27, he says, They will see the human one coming on a cloud with great power and splendor. The Son of Man comes towards us. This is the wonder of Advent. God coming towards us, always towards us. Heaven comes towards us. The next world comes from the future and meets us here. So we retrieve that inner child, we call to mind the wide-eyed wonder that might grant us permission to imagine the new thing coming upon the clouds. Not on your social media field, feed. Not on the wings of any policy or law or political party. The human one comes from the sky. Now when these things happen, Jesus says, stand up straight. Raise your heads because your redemption is near. And that's the key, isn't it? The word redemption. We may tend to live in a fear of devastation and judgment. But these cosmic apocalyptic signs signify one thing. Redemption. Renewal. Liberation healing i saw a very provocative sign at a protest recently and i do not have a photo of it for you for the slideshow because i might get in trouble but this sign was eerie it was a woman sitting on a birthing stool with her knees open wide and her face scrunched in labor pains and being birthed from her body was the earth and the sign read the new world is on its way keep breathing keep pushing And i immediately called the mind the words of isaiah 42 I've kept still for a very long time. I've been silent and restrained myself, but now, like a woman in labor, I will roar, I will pant, I will gasp. The new world is on its way. And so, we're called to stay alert, to be present to the labor pains, to stay grounded in hope, rooted in wonder, firmly committed to keep breathing, keep pushing. And I acknowledge these nights are long. This old world is weary and wounded, but we persist. Pressed but not crushed, falling but not faltering, breaking through, never breaking apart. If the Advent story tells us anything, it's that escaping the feelings of being very much alive and present to this body and this bodily longing is not the hope we have. The incarnation is a story of becoming embodied, human again, present again to the longing in Europe I have a photo for this so the awkward transition from the star video in Europe if you've ever been there and this is probably also in eastern Canada but not in Alberta because Alberta is a very young uh, place but if you've ever been there and toured the countryside in Europe you may have noticed something strange um, about the old churches I have a photo here and some of you um, if you grew up evangelical and you toured Europe and noticed this you probably even found it a bit creepy You have to walk through the graveyard to get into the church. Old headstones, some hundreds of years old. Slabs of ancient concrete, moss covered and cracked as if losing a silent battle against the soil that seeks to slowly suck everything into itself. And inside the church, if you got to go inside and tour, you may have even noticed old bones of saints in the walls, behind glass, or under the floorboards beneath you. Relics, they're called. Bits. And pieces of the holy ones who've passed over from this world into the next. The theology of this practice is actually quite simple and wildly biblical. The theology of this practice, um, Christians used to bury their dead in the churchyard because they believed that the church is the community who gathers with and within the great cloud of witnesses to wait together with the living and the dead for that great day when the next world would break through. We call it the day of resurrection, the great day of the Lord, when the holy ones of the past come to us from the future, the new world. The next world joins us in our gathering. They used to believe that when we sing together and when we serve together and when we weep and pray together, that those who've passed over to the next world join in our singing and pray with us and wait with us for that great day when the new world would join and overshadow this one weary and wounded. So a church is at once very ancient, like a graveyard, and yet we believe that those old bones don't belong to the past. They belong to the future. We are always on the edge of the very new. The prophet Isaiah says over and over and over, forget the former things, behold, I'm doing a new thing. And so, my friends, We don't sing these songs or tell these stories to remember the past. We don't do Advent every year because it's a good way to remember an old story. It isn't about retrieving the past or preserving a tradition. This is us summoning the future, calling forth with trembling voices from within the depths of our true longing for that next world to come and meet us here. This is the time of Advent when we renew our commitment to impatience, when we recommit ourselves to hope, when we tap into that longing for home together. Now there's a text in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter three uh, that was assigned as, as part of this series and this is the, the way Paul says we should do this. How should we summon the future? How should we wait for that uh, new world? Um, Paul says um, to this community and, and the, the community in Thessalonica is really unique Um, They were familiar with the absence that cuts through like thread through a needle. Members of the Thessalonian church were beginning to die. uh, And that was causing a great sorrow in the community because they had really believed um, with every fiber of their being that the new world would be born before the end of their time in this world. And so some began to be overcome with despair. And Paul's letter was an attempt to encourage them in the wait. In 1 Thessalonians 3, he writes, How can we thank God enough for you? given all the joy we have because of you before our God. Night and day, we pray more than ever to see all of you in person and to complete whatever you still need for your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus guide us on our way back to you. May the Lord cause you to increase and enrich your love for each other, for everyone in the same way as we also love you. May the love cause your hearts to be strengthened to be blameless in holiness before our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. The hope Paul seems to speak of makes a little more sense perhaps than Jesus' in Luke 21. Cosmic intrusions uh, maybe aren't as hopeful and you know, tangible as Paul's um, words about love. He's encouraged by the love of the church. He's encouraged by their love and longing for one another. He's encouraged by their good memories of each other, and he believes that they live out their redemption. Um, uh, uh, We know, sorry, that that church lived in a world not so different than ours today. It was a, a world of discouragement, a world of bad news. And yet in the midst of suffering, Paul points to God in Christ as the true source of joy, community, intimacy, and love. And this love is the thing that strengthens us as we wait so that we might wait faithfully. This love is what holds us together, stitches us together like a needle and thread, red thread, strong and true. Both Paul and Jesus are longing for the church family to remain faithful amid persecution and hardship and upheaval. Jesus' incarnation was timed as the blossoming leaves on the fig tree so that we might know not just that our future hopes of redemption and new creation um, are secured in, in the future, but that we might know those joys in the present moment. Jesus enters human history in the midst of disaster to be near those he loves because even our God is homesick for God's good creation. We are the body of Christ. And so look around for a moment. Take a moment, look around the people beside you. You aren't alone in your longing for the inbreaking of God's new world. As such, our longing to be with each other reaches back and comes from the great beyond. Our longing for liberation and healing for ourselves and our neighborhood comes straight from the divine heart of Christ. The chambers of which contain the sun, the moon, and the stars every cell, every molecule that makes all of this, this, as we enter into the brokenness of each other's stories in prayer, in love, and in longing. In the physical presence we have with one another, we mirror the image of God who draws us near, comes to us from the past, and meets us here from the future. In Luke 21, this is my conclusion, Jesus warns that the pain of despair leads to destructive coping mechanisms. Drunkenness, careless living, dependency on anything that would help us escape that vulnerable feeling of being homesick without hope. I admit I've depended on these escape mechanisms. There are many. Online shopping feels great. Video games, the soul-sucking vacuum of despair known as the Instagram feed. A new diet, another gin and tonic anything to take the edge off, to give me a momentary sense of peace about my resignation to despair. But Paul knows this temptation and he encourages us gently that the only way to stay present to the longing is to increase and enrich our love for one another. That we'd let that love cause our hearts to be strengthened, blameless in holiness so that we would be ready for that great day when Christ, our lowly brother, would come to us from the next world, bringing all of heaven with him. So scream into the night if you must. And perhaps that's exactly what we ought to do. Are you still coming? Is change still on its way? Have you forgotten about us? Dare to feel impatient once again. Feel the needle through the thread. Feel it all. Feel yourself being stitched together, held through this long night, held together in love. A few weeks ago, (laughs) the night sky here in the northern part of the world was alive with wonder. Do you remember? For those with uh, wide-eyed wonderlust who could wake up in the middle of the night, there were northern lights that danced across the sky. (laughs) Green and purple like never before. It was so amazing um, seeing the photos uh, online and imagining all the people driving north in the dark of the night to see the show. Perhaps you're like me. Some nights I have a hard time sleeping. I don't quite wake up with enough drive to go do anything. (laughs) I just lay there angry that I'm not sleeping. Sometimes I stare into my screen until the sleepiness returns. But lately, this last month when I awake, and I always do, I like to close my eyes and imagine those northern lights dancing and dancing and dancing somewhere, whether any human notices them or not. It's because I'm talking too much. I imagine Saturn on his 29-year journey around the sun. I think of Orion and the Pleiades. I think of my own body riding through the galaxy on this planet. And I remember that we are being held together in a delicate balance by something, something that dances and dares to stay awake, something, someone with a heart that feels it all, the joy and the sorrow longing for home. So I'd like to read a poem procured by beloved Anna. A poem called Homesickness by Reverend Sarah Speed. And at the end of this poem, Anna's going to sing a special song to end our service. The poem goes like this. How do you describe homesickness to a child? You don't. They know. Children know the feeling of being away from home. It's fear dipped in loneliness that What if I've been forgotten, sonnet? Or the what if I can't go back, refrain? Even a healthy, scrubbed clean, showered with love child knows that the love of home, the longing of home. But if I had to, if I had to describe the aching feeling, I would say, homesickness is when longing and grief wrap themselves around you like a blanket. It's the door to comfort thrown open. It's an eye on the horizon for what could be. And the only way out is to keep walking, keep dreaming, keep looking for signs that will point you back home. And if you tell that to a child, you just may realize that a part of your own spirit has shoes on and has always been walking, always been dreaming for the home that could be. The door to comfort has been blown open. Tell God I'm homesick. I'm on my way.